If you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to James chapter 5. And you will realize that that is the end of James. And we, in fact, are in our last two messages on James. And so we have almost gone verse by verse, word by word, through the entire letter. And I know many of you have commented how much you have enjoyed it and enjoyed studying the Bible like this. And I think that it has been a wonderfully rich text, definitely convicting, right, as we've gone through. Today I want to talk to us about the idea of prayer. If you remember the last message we had in James, it was about prayer as well. But we, we highlighted the, the dependency that is expressed in prayer. That we are dependent upon the Lord. Today, I want us to notice not only a genuine faith as a faith that prays, but a genuine faith as a faith that prays together. I mentioned in the last text that we looked at, and I'll say it again and again and again and again, the idea of Christianity without the church, the idea of being a Christian alone, is foreign to the concept of Scripture. The, the, the theology involved, the nature of being a Christian is that you are one in an assembly. You are one of a group that's called together. We, the, the theology and the doctrine of adoption, when we become Christians, when we become born again, we are born into the family of God. We know this, but sometimes it's easy for us to obscure it. And individuals have been hurt by churches. I understand that. I understand that there are tensions and animosities and different things. But a Christian without a church is like a bee without a hive. We've talked about that last time we looked here. And it becomes all the more apparent as we look at this text, as we look at the the one another texts in the Bible, that Christians are to live together, that they are to support each other, that they are to be in fellowship and family with each other, that, that God does his ministry primarily through the work of the church. And so it is important for us to be and to belong and to commit to a local church. Now, As we begin this sermon, I want to tell you a story to set it off. And this story actually kind of fits in with today, with with thinking about Independence Day. Because one one of the things that historians say had a huge influence on the motivation for our nation to become independent is to overthrow the theology that had been presented as the divine right of king. So in other words, that a king was born and he had the right to rule over people. And and part of this shift in theology in America happened in a time that we call the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. And the center of the Great Awakening in America focuses in on one day, July 7th, 1741. On July 7th, 1741, Jonathan Edwards preached what has been known as the greatest sermon ever preached. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Has anybody ever read that? In school, I had to read it. And it is a powerful, powerful sermon. It is a sermon full of illustrations. One illustration in the sermon is that that God's wrath is like water being held back behind a dam. And because of your sin, 
God is long-suffering and He is waiting, but one day if you do not repent, that dam will break and the water will come down upon you. Another illustration from the sermon is that that you are are sinners in the hands of an angry God, like God is holding a, a spider over its web. And at any moment it could fall and God's wrath could fall upon you. Oh, the great need that you have to turn to Him. It's a powerful sermon. And, and perhaps you've heard it preached. Perhaps I, I've been to, to events where, where individuals have dressed in period clothes and they've come up and they've preached it. And it's been powerful and amazing. But here's something you might not know. Jonathan Edwards was not a powerful, amazing preacher. He was a bookworm. In fact, it's said that the day that he preached this sermon, he held his notes so close to his face that no one could see his face. He spoke in a dry monotone. It was what we might consider dull. Oh, but God worked powerfully through that sermon. It's said that as he as he taught that sermon, people began to run down the aisle and they cry, Mr. Edwards, have mercy. People began to cry out, I want to be saved. There was an amazing act of God that happened there. And what happened there began to spread from town to town to town all over New England. It was an amazing thing. But here's something else that you might not know about that sermon. That sermon was prompted by a group of believers who were so concerned about the sinfulness of their neighbors. They were so concerned about the godlessness all around them that they literally became convinced that if we don't powerfully share the good news with these people, God will judge all of us. And so that day, while Jonathan Edwards stood and preached before that church in Massachusetts, there was another church a few miles away that was just as full. And it was full that whole time of believers fervently praying for that message. Powerfully praying for that message. That, that, that Jonathan Edwards would be able to deliver and that God's hand would work in a mighty way and that they would see a revival within their community, that they would see something powerful, an act of God. Oh, friends, what a powerful thing it is when a church prays. Amen? Perhaps you've heard of Saddleback Community Church in Los Angeles. One of the largest churches in the United States. It just exploded in the 1980s. What's often not said about Saddleback is that before Rick Warren went there to plant the church, there was multiple attempts in the Los Angeles area to plant a church in that community that failed. Multiple. And it got to the point that the director of missions began to get together with all of the pastors in, in the area and get their churches together and get, to begin to pray and to begin the, 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 the groundwork and praying hard and prayer walking that area. They did all of this for a matter, I think, of three years. And then one day, they called a guy who just graduated seminary, Rick Warren, and asked him to come play a, plant a church. Now, why was that church so successful? Oh, friends, the ground was furrowed. 
It was tilled. Hearts were prepared. It was seeded and planted with the gospel well before he got there. It was empowered by churches coming together, praying together. Oh God, would you do a mighty work here? What a powerful thing it is when the church prays. What a powerful thing it is when the church prays. If you would, look at our text. Our text today is in James chapter 5. And we'll be looking here at verses 16 through 18. James 5, 16 through 18. Let me read this for you. Therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. For the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruit. There are three things that I want us to to concentrate and look at this text. The, The heart of this text is again a church not just where individuals pray, but a church that prays together, a church that, that joins arm, a church that, that grabs common causes, a church that, that moves forward not just in action, but in dependence. God will move. Show us where to go. Petition before the Lord, not just, not just activity, but truly a genuine heart of prayerfulness. Church, my goal as we look at this, as we think about this, as I prayed for you this week, is that this would stir us to be a people that prays together, that it would stir us. I know our days are busy. There are distractions like no other. But oh, that we would be a people of prayer. What a testimony for a church to be known as. Statistics say that most churches spend less than 45 seconds in prayer in a service. Can you imagine what our Baptist forefathers would say to us if they heard that statistic? Let alone Jesus. Friends, we need to make a place for prayer. Not just individually, but corporately together. As we look at this text, again, there's three things that I want us to see. The first thing that I want to see is that a praying church is a church that practices confession. A praying church is a church that practices confession. Now, that might seem odd for you because it's not a thing that we talk about much unless we're talking about confessing to God, unless we're talking about coming to the Lord and asking in repentance for him to save us. But it's been said, and rightfully so, that the Christian life, in the Christian life, your initial repentance is, is just the beginning. The Christian life is a life of ongoing repentance. A life of ongoing repentance for our sin, but a life of ongoing repentance as we sin against others as well. And James highlights this here as we look at this text. Look with me in verse 16. He begins with this section on prayer here by saying, Therefore, confess your sins... To God, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
Now, there's a few things that I think that we should think about this, about this idea of confession. Perhaps you come from a Catholic background. We're not talking about going into the room with a priest and confessing your sins that him, that he might resolve you of your sins, that he might grant forgiveness. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is, is our, uh, our sins against each other. When we sin, even though we sin against one another, we also sin against the Lord. So confession is healthy. We should be in a practice of if I've done you wrong, forgive me. I understand that I've sinned against you. Would you forgive me? And, and for the other person to say, I grant that forgiveness, that is healthy. That's healthy in a marriage. There are some of you that have marriages right now that are like this. You're like sandpaper against each other because you simply won't say, forgive me and I forgive you and mean it. It sounds simple, but we get into this habit of I'm sorry. Or we get into this habit of ignoring that there was an issue. When the biblical model is to recognize our sin and ask forgiveness and to be granted forgiveness. Oh, how great it is that God did that for us. Amen? That we came to Him, we recognized our sin, and we said, I am a great sinner. I have sinned against you. I repent of this sin. Would you forgive me? And we know that He is gracious and good and loves to forgive us when we come to Him. Oh, that we would model that with each other. So, so how do we do this within the church here where it says, therefore, confess your sins to each other? Older versions interpreted this and, and said, confess your faults. The real word is sin. Our, our sins, confess our sins. And, and so what does this mean? Um, I, I think, I think there's, a, there's a good wisdom in in the old adage that you confess your sin to the degree that it was, that your sin was. So here's what I mean. If you sinned against an individual, you should go to that individual. You don't need to come to the whole church. If you sinned against a group, you need to go to the group. One time I had a, I was in a life group uh, when I was in college and an individual, um, he was having a really holy moment and he was trying to get things right and we were doing our prayer beforehand and he said, I want you to pray for me because I, I, I just find myself lusting over the women in this group. Not, a, not the way you're supposed to do this. It doesn't mean we have to come and air everything out for everything that we've done in front of everyone. There are instances where individuals have sinned in a way publicly that has brought repudiation, that has brought shame upon the church. In those instances, it would be right for someone who, who feels that shame, who feels as though they should repent to come before the church and to say, you know, I, I repent of this. Would you forgive me? And for the church to grant that forgiveness. That's healthy and that's good. It's actually outlined in Scripture as a way to restore a brother. We're going to talk about that in the next passage here in James. But all too often, we have sins that we cover up, we sweep under the rug, we walk away from, and we do not walk in the way of repentance. We do not walk in the way of confession. Because of our pride, we ignore it. And though you think others may not know, they often see that pride. Oh, what it is to see a humble man, a humble woman that can own up to their sin and can say, would you have grace as God had grace? 
Not only is prayer, not only is repentance and confession uh, healthy to keep the, the life of the church together, but in the context here, it speaks to the fact that before we come to pray, we need to deal with ourselves. If there is sin in our lives, if there is this, this overarching sin in our lives, it hinders, it affects our prayer. Do you realize this? The Bible talks about this in many places. In Psalm 66, it says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. How many of you have gone and sought the Lord in prayer while you know things are going wrong? One of two things happens. Usually we won't pray about something if we are convicted that it's sinful, will we? If, if we know that what we're doing or, or what's around that or, or the things connected to that are, are sinful or convicted that way by the Holy Spirit, we just don't pray. But sometimes we'll be so bold that we will pray about things even knowing that it's not God's will. That hinders your prayer. Do you understand that? Peter says, in, in, as he writes, that, that the, the relationship between husbands and wives, the way that the husband treats the wife, if he's not treating her well, if he's not loving her well, that that will hinder his prayers before God. Friends, the way we live with each other matters. It's our integrity. And God wants us to be an upright people who seek to serve Him. We're not going to be perfect. That's why there's repentance and endless grace. An endless grace. So the first thing that we see is that if we're going to be a church of prayer, if we're going to be a people of prayer, we need to first be a people of confession. We need to be a people humble enough to say, I have sinned. Would you forgive me? We need to be a, a people that, that promote unity and love within the family. We need to be a people that live righteously. We're going to see the example that, that, that is given here in this text. The second thing that we see is that a praying church prevails in intercessory prayer. They continue in it. They go after it. It's not a one and done type prayer. It is agonizing in prayer. It is long suffering in prayer. It is fervency in prayer. It is real, genuine prayer. Oh, how we need this. I'm more convicted than any of you. I pray so quickly. I let go of things so fast. But the God calls us. To depend on him in prayer individually and together that we would lift up things over and over again, that we would fervently pray, that we would be a people marked by prayer, that we would be that guy. All of us have that guy, right? We've heard him pray and, and I swear we felt the floor shake, right? That we would be able to pray with that kind of enthusiasm. With that kind of genuineness, with that kind of passion, with that kind of love for the Lord and that kind of compassion for the need that we're bringing before Him. That's prayer. Not, Lord, bless all the missionaries. And I'm as guilty as all of you. And I check it off and I say, I prayed for the missionaries. That we would be people of prayer. So first we see a challenge here. For us to continue to prevail in prayer. It says pray for one another so that you may be healed. 
Pray for one another that you may be healed. This is not a prayer for yourself. This is a prayer for each other within the congregation. If you remember in the context preceding it, it talked about the individual who was sick. And the idea is that they're so sick that they can't pray, so they call for the elders to come and to pray for them, to anoint their heads with oil, that in their prayers they might be healed. And so now it says for all, for everybody, for the rest of the church, this is where you join in. They might call me to the hospital to pray for them, but then we come together and we lift them up together. Do you see this? This is not just the paid staff guy to do all the work of the ministry. This is the church, the power of the church doing the work of the ministry together. The verb here, the, the, the tense of the verb here is that it is ongoing prayer so that you may be healed. Pray for one another. It is continuously pray for one another. It could be translated. Pray ongoingly that you might for, for one another. The Bible talks about, Paul talks about pray without ceasing. If we examine the amount of time that Scripture sets forth for us that we should be in prayer, how convicting would that be? We should be a people marked by prayer. So we're to be praying for each other um, continuously. The second thing is to the, the promise for those who go to this kind of prayer. Why do we stop praying so often? If we're honest, we'll say because we give up on God. Right? If we're honest, we say we don't pray that fervently. Even though we have this need, we don't spend as much time in prayer as we should, as we ought. Because in the back of our minds, in the back of our hearts, creeps up this thought, God won't do it. If we knew that if we prevailed in prayer that God would do something, would we stop praying? No, we would go on. Our passion would grow. Our intensity would grow. And yet, we are so quick, often, to give up. Look, look here at this promise. It says, the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What an encouragement that is for prayer. And you might be saying, okay, that's an encouragement, but I'm not that righteous person. That's, that's for somebody else. That's for that guy in the back of my mind that when he prayed, the floor shook. That's not me. This isn't talking about a, a righteousness as in perfection. The idea, I think, that most commentators say, and I think is the best way to translate this and, and put it in perspective, is what did James just talk about before he talked about this kind of prayer? That you would be a person of confession. That you would confess your sins, that you were right with each other and that you were right with God. Would that not make you a righteous person? Do you see that? James is saying, live your life in a godly way. Be ready to confess your sins. Be ready to, to pray with each other because someone who lives for God is a powerful prayer partner. That's the person you want praying for you. A church of people dedicated to trying to live for the Lord. For, for when they fail, they come in confession. They, they, keep, they keep their relationships good with each other. That's a group you want praying for you. It is powerful. And it is effective. Do you see that? A bunch of people that are half committed. 
A bunch of people with sin in their lives that they won't confess. How powerful and effective is that? Do you see the difference? That's what James is trying to say. He's trying to say, church, if you want to experience the power of God in your prayers, live in a way that exhibits righteousness. Not perfection. Righteousness. That you are living in a way that honors God. That you're confessing your sins. And you're praying fervently for each other. And you know what you'll experience? Power. The power of God. We want that, don't we, church? Can I get an amen on that one? Okay? We want that. We want to see that. We want to see God work mightily and amazingly through us here. We don't want our agenda. We want to be open and led by the Lord. Where will you lead us? Where will we go? What will we do? We have no idea the things that you have planned for us. We have no idea what you could do with us if we became committed people to prayer. We could rock the foundations of this very community. God says, you want that if you want power in your church. If you want that kind of power of God amongst you and working through you, it starts with your own personal integrity before the Lord. Your own desire and pursuit and pureness to follow Him. Are you going to be perfect? No, that's why you've got to confess. But at your core, that's your desire. That's your desire. So it says here that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful, it is effective, and it will accomplish much. Who doesn't want to see their prayers accomplish much, right? Think about that. It will accomplish much. I don't want to get too far off. There's a lot of, there's, there's a lot of Theology that gets a little crazy when you start talking about, you know, you're not praying big enough prayers. You're not expecting what God wants for you. Go bigger, bigger, bigger. But there is a truth here. When when you're living your life and a church is living its life dedicated to the Lord, to being obedient, to loving each other. Things will happen that we had no idea. Things things will happen that we have no idea. And that's what we're doing. That's, we're laying the groundwork. Why did I go through James? I, I spoke with a friend of mine that's a pastor, and he said, you're there for a year. What have you done? I said, we've gone through James. He said, why? That's hard stuff. I said, because my prayer is I want my people to prepare their hearts, prepare their attitudes, prepare their love for each other, and have a desire and a burden for the Lord. That we would pursue righteousness. That in what we do, the Lord would honor. That we would be a faithful people. There's an example here of prevailing prayer. So, so James says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It accomplishes much. And then he says, here's an example. You, you want to see what I'm talking about? You want to really... Powerful prayer in your church. You want God to really work and do some mighty and incredible things in your church. Let me show you somebody who prays. Let me show you something of the power that you could have if if you had this kind of prayer going on in your church. What's his example? Look at verse 17. 
Elijah. Now there's a man of prayer. Elijah was a human being just as we are. He earnestly, he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed. And the heavens gave rain. And the earth produced its crops. When he says this, it's like saying, I want you to be an evangelist. Remember Billy Graham? He says, I want you to... I want you to be effective in your prayer. Uh, 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 The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Confess your sins to each other. Live a righteous life. Have power in your church and your prayer. Just like Elijah. Now, we all know something about Elijah and prayer. Elijah, he gives the example here of Elijah praying that it would not rain and it stopped for three and a half years. Now, that's a powerful prayer. And then he prays again. And what does it do immediately? It rains. That's a powerful prayer. But if you also remember Elijah, one of the most famous stories about Elijah, one of my favorites is Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Remember this? They make the sacrifices. And the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and dancing around. And Elijah goes, where's your God? Is he, on the bath- is he in the bathroom? You know, <laughs> is, he, is he busy right now? And it comes Elijah's turn. And instead of just God light this, this pile... Remember what he said? Go get some water. Let's soak it. And Elijah prayed. And fire came down from heaven and lit that offering. That's a powerful prayer. You know what James says? You know what his whole point here is? Church, if you would live your lives to live righteously, to follow the Lord... To be open in confession, in, 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 in cleansing your sins amongst each other and before the Lord. And you, you lived in a powerful way with each other and you prayed for each other. You would have that kind of power within your church. That's a powerful promise, isn't it? He even says, you might think Elijah is just too much. I could never be Elijah. But look what he says. He says, Elijah is a man just like you. He's not that much difference. What made him different? He wasn't magical. He wasn't a spiritual being. But he was a man of fervent prayer. Oh, that we would be a people of a fervent prayer. Oh, that you would catch the vision and we would understand that if we lived each other pursuing the Lord and praying for each other, we would be a force that could not be reckoned with with the evil of this world. Oh, that the church in general, not just us, but the church would get serious about their lives and get serious about prayer and pray for the power of God to come upon them. We have the greatest force that could ever be imagined on our side. And we don't access it. Oh, this is a powerful verse, isn't it? Third thing I want you to see. And it's an assumption here from from everything, and it's this, is that in the church, the whole point of what he's getting to here is that if we would pray like this, we would experience this power and God would be glorified. God would be glorified. Just as God is glorified through the testimony of Elijah all of these years later as we look back and we think of the, the miraculous things that he did as he prayed and God worked, we too would experience and see tremendously miraculous things in our day if we would be a people of prayer like that. Oh, the things that we would experience. Oh, the miracles that we would see. The the spiritual miracles. Friends, 
When God calls a sinner from death to life, it's a miracle every time. It is is God working through His Spirit. It is an amazing thing. When's the last time you prayed for an individual to be saved? When's the last time on your lips uttered the name of someone who is rent on your heart that their spiritual condition is wrong and that they need to be saved? And we wonder why we don't experience the power. When is the last time that you prayed for an individual who might be a Christian but has wandered far along? Their their life no longer gives testimony to that which they say that they follow Christ. When's the last time that you prayed? Lord, would you bring them back to the fold? Would you open their eyes to their sin? Would you bring them to repentance? Would you restore their life in you? Oh, if we would do that. Can you imagine the power? God wants to empower us to do this. The gospel is not just about proclaiming, it's about loving, it's about interacting, it's about God placing people on our hearts and in our lives that we can love them and share our lives with them and pray for them and watch the power of God to bring them from death to life. And we've seen this, amen? We've seen God do this, we've felt God do this in ourselves. Oh, that we would be a people of prayer, a people with a burden for others to fervently pray Lord, would you save them? Second thing, we would see all kinds of physical miracles as well. In in Elijah's day, it was rain from heaven. And in the early church, there was physical healing. But church, when we gather and pray together, when we get in unison, we see things happen. think Think of all the things that have been happening in this last year. We have had every event that we have put on has been a record attendance. Our church has been growing. We've had had growth that is just huge compared to years before. God is at work. It might be small. It might be ones and twos at a time. But God is at work. And it's in large part because we have people of prayer. Oh, that we would gather more and that we'd pray more. And we'd say, God, we expect you to do this. And we want to work for this. And we're going to prepare our hearts and and this place. And we want to be a place that's used by you. You see the power that's in that. Not only then do we have the work of God behind us, encouraging us, enabling us, but we're preparing our own hearts. We're setting our own minds on the things above that we are seeking to serve and save the lost. We're seeking to make disciples. In the last year, a year ago this time, this church was in prayer as you were searching for a pastor. It was a season of prayer. And the Lord answered. And it was a wonderful time. I, I still remember, you know, at last it was June, but, but a year ago in June when the church called me and how happy everyone was. And, and over the last year, I think we've all seen that it's been a good fit. We've, the Lord has blessed us. And we have grown in unity. I can't tell you how many people have visited this church that have been here before in the past and they have said it is like a new church because of, because of the life and the vibrance and the love. And it's palpable. People can come in and they can feel it. That's an amazing and a wonderful thing. And it's not just our effort. It's wrought by prayer. Oh, that we would continue to pray and the things that we would see 
I could keep going. (laughs) But let me end with this. If we want to be a church that our faith leads us to pray and we experience the power of God in our prayers, we need to first be a people of confession. We need to be willing to confess to the Lord our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness, the Bible promises. Is there something you're holding back from the Lord? Is there a sin in your life? Is there something that you know that you need confession? I would encourage you, get that right with the Lord. We need to be a people that confess our sins one to another. Are there those in this church that you've hurt? That you know that you've sinned against? That you know that there is that tension? Would you be humble enough to say, Brother, I sinned against you in doing this. Would you forgive me? And would a clear heart and a pursuit of righteousness lead us to be a people that prevail in prayer for each other, experiencing and expecting the work of God, and may He be glorified here in this place.